Would you open God's precious holy word to 2 Peter chapter 2, the plague of false prophets. This is what I started, this sermon I started last week and I didn't, I thought too much of myself. I didn't get as far as I thought I would. So we'll continue in this same message, verses 1 through 11 in chapter 2. But I'll read what we already studied Then we'll begin with where we left off last time. But false prophets, now it's a section about false teaching, false prophets. Also arose among the people, just as there will be also false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels who sinned, having cast them down to Tartarus and delivered them in chains of gloomy darkness, being kept for judgment. I think that's where I got to last time. Um, Nobody remembers, so I can just start wherever I want to, right? Uh, And you were asleep by the time we got that far. Uh, So, okay. The context is talking about the horror of false teaching to a a Christian, to those of us who are in Christ. He's talking about the terrible judgment that awaits false teachers. We talked about all that. We talked about how they are headed for judgment. And if God did not spare, and then there are three examples. Here we got through one of them, the fallen angels. So that brings us to where we are now. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, uh, the fallen angels. So we go from there. And he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, one of eight, when having brought in a flood upon the world of the ungodly. I'm gonna stop there. But there is a comparison to be made between the world in which Noah lived and the society and culture in which Lot lived. Because Lot is mentioned in the next section, the next slide, Noah and Lot. First of all, let's start with the time of Noah, the antediluvian period, the ancient world, the world before the flood, one of the harshest indictments against humanity is given in Genesis, and it begins on down in Genesis chapter six, but it talks about the pre-flood world. We don't know much about it. We know enough about it to know that God brought absolute and complete judgment 
upon that world, the pre-flood world. We also know that this is what the Bible says about that world. Before I describe it, I want you to think with me for just a minute. The world in which we live right now. Think of the wickedness of the world on every level. The wickedness that is found in the highest halls of, of judgment and legislation all the way down into the preschool world. Everything in between what you see on television, what is offered to you in theaters, books that are written, attitudes that exist, lifestyles that are becoming more and more prominent, but not just that, how the rest of the world just in a lull seems to accept this, this world that is growing more wicked and more wicked by the day. Wickedness is legislated, wickedness is extolled, Righteousness is condemned even to the point that laws today are written against the righteousness that is described in God's precious holy word. The world is be becoming a world of reprobation. Things are flipped upside down and we're living in that time and in that, uh, under that oracle where the prophet said, woe to, the, woe to those who think that evil is good and, and good is evil. Just all flipped upside down. This is where we live today. How horrible is the world? It's terrible. It's awful. The things that our children are exposed to and in some cases even mandated to agree with. And in some cases, if you, if you give a biblically based Christian worldview opinion of something. Many times people live in places where, or work in places where they might be fired for such a thing. And this kind of attitude permeates the world. It's all around the world. It's not just here. And yet, God has restrained himself from judging. Now back to Genesis. To paraphrase, and you, I'm sure most of us would remember what is written there. That God, God sighed in disgust over the cosmos that existed, the world that existed in that day. The word cosmos is used here upon the world, the cosmos. A cosmos is a system. An, a system in which everything has to operate. In this case, what Peter writes of is the world of the, of the pre-flood era that 
existed in a system or a system existed within that world that was absolutely and totally wicked. Now think of today. How much worse can it get? Well, it's described here. God was so displeased. There's a word in the Hebrew that says he, he repented. And actually, it's an, it's an extensive, you, you, need, you need a more expansive translation of the word. What it means is that he was, he was so utterly distraught over the system that the only thing that could settle the issue in God's heart was vengeance or wrath. The wrath of God, that's how bad the world had gotten. And mankind, the culture, the whole culture of the world is described that every thought and every imagination of man was only to do evil all the time. To enjoy living in unrighteousness. Now, if you take the biblical timeline from the time of Adam to the time of the flood, less than 2,000 years had passed. It was a world where people lived to be hundreds of years old. So, you have also, you have examples of people in that world who had children, and when they had children, they were already hundreds of years old. So, they can procreate for hundreds of years. Now, in the early, in the early time of, of uh, humanity, the, the, the race would have, been, would have been very strong and energetic, filled with vitality. And one scholar who ponders upon the pre-flood world said that there's no telling how many multiple births there were. One, one husband and one wife having children for several hundred years. Their children to already start having children while they were still, and those children and those children, I mean, they could have been in the fourth or fifth generation and they would still be having children. And in such a time of vitality early in our existence, it could be that there were multiple births all the time. I mean, they could have been having litters instead of births, right? But a thoughtful scientist, Henry Morris, he's been dead quite a while, but he, he calculated the population of the pre-flood world best he could. He did it on the basis of people living from the time of Adam and Eve, and he had the assistance of a mathematician. And so they, they take that and then they begin to add generation after generation and generations within generations and multiple generations that continue to multiply. And this was an exponential kind of thing. And they figured on the basis, not on the fact that, you know, boy, women were having triplets and all this kind of, no, they just figured on the basis of current statistics in their day, which this was back in the 60s, I think. The current statistics of their day, how many times a birth was the birth of either twins or triplets. They didn't go beyond triplets. So they factored that into what they were calculating. And the calculation was, now this is staggering. 
that there could have been as many as 32 billion people on the face of the earth in those just slightly less than 2,000 years. Think about that. Now, I'm not saying that's how many there were, but it's an interesting thought. You can have that, 16 billion. That's still twice what the earth's population is today. It was, it was a, would have been a fast growing population. And they were smart. They were, they were intelligent. Adam, he named all the animals. A PhD in zoology can't name all of the animals. So they lived for hundreds of years. They shared, even this was before the Babel experience, after the flood, they shared the same language. And so they could have had all kinds of projects that uh, they worked on. The problem was, it was proof of how fallen we are in Adam, the pre-flood world. Before Noah, there was another preacher of righteousness, Enoch, Jude, Jude talks about him. He preached righteousness back in the pre-flood world and he preached coming judgment upon unrighteousness. So they had this preaching, maybe others, but then they had Noah and his preaching for 120 years apparently, the way that it reads. And yet still people grew worse and worse and more and more wicked until out of the millions and millions and perhaps billions of people in the pre-flood world population, the Bible, God Almighty concludes that there were only eight people who were, and tamim is the Hebrew, it means they were unblemished. They were separate, they were separate in their generation. They were unmixed. They were not mixed with the rest of the world. The rest of the world had collapsed into error, darkness, unrestrained sin. I think of how bad things are today and God has not yet judged us and concluded us to be under judgment. How much worse was it in those days? And the language here says that Noah, a herald of righteousness, one of eight. Now that's an interesting phraseology. Eight were righteous out of the hundreds of millions, billions, I don't know. Out of all the population of the pre-flood world, only eight people were, to use modern vernacular, only eight people were saved. Only eight. After Enoch and his time of preaching, here was Noah, 120 years. The ark he was building was a visible testimony, an illustration of coming judgment. It never moved upon anyone. It continues. Every thought and every imagination was wickedness continually in the heart of every man and woman and child on the face of the earth except for these eight. Now the phraseology in the Greek text, Noah was a herald of righteousness, he was one of eight. You see it up there in the top line, one of eight. Well, does that mean that the other seven also were sharing a message of righteousness? My guess is probably so. And so, you know, 
people would have, if they didn't come and witness it, they would have probably at least heard of what Noah was saying and his family and what Noah was doing. It didn't, it had nothing. It had no, their hearts were hard. There was no sense of conviction. And the only thing that could satisfy the displeased heart of almighty God was to pour out his wrath, was to execute judgment. And he said, the end of all flesh has come before me. I'm not going to take this anymore. Totally, absolutely, utterly wicked world. People, people who'd lived hundreds and hundreds of years, some perhaps who were still children and yet God knew their hearts. God knew that at that point in time, except for these eight, there was no hope for the rest of the world. And God condemned that world and he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. In the greater context, and we're not to the end of it yet, here's the point. How awful are false teachers? They suffer the same condemnation, number one, that fallen angels suffered. Number two, that the pre-flood world suffered. An entire world, a populated world, except for Noah and the eight of them. All of the rest of the world died under the condemnation, judgment, and wrath of Almighty God. Now here's a point to be made. God's elect in whenever part of human history they may live need to expect that we are always in the extreme minority. But it doesn't make any difference to God. Eight of them were spared and only eight of them were spared. God destroyed a whole world of people. Now, if he'll do that for a whole world of people, if he will do that for those angels who had sinned and who had fallen, he will judge with the same judgment those who are false prophets and false teachers. Now, let me, let me revisit something here and go back to the first slide. These false prophets and false teachers secretly introduced destructive heresies. Remember, we talked about that and we have to, and we have to keep reminding ourselves the only, way that it, the, the only way that a heresy, the only way that a false teaching can come in and be introduced is that the people to whom the false teaching is being introduced just don't know their Bible. They're not disciples. The Great Commission is to make disciples. People are to be learners of the Word of God. The Word of God is absolute truth. It never changes. The standard of righteousness in the human race 
is always changing. But the law of God, the righteousness, the standard of righteousness that is given all the way through the scriptures, it never changes. It always stays the same. And sooner or later, those who live in absolute opposition to the standard of righteousness of God will face the wrath of God. Our only deliverance from it is Christ, our Savior. He provides to us his righteousness, took upon himself at the cross our sin. And we're saved because of the standard of righteousness who Christ is. He is our standard of righteousness, Son of God. And we are in Christ by faith, called, drawn by God, the Father, to God, the Son, convicted and even somehow spiritually empowered, or should I say spiritually resurrected, the work of the Holy Spirit, dead in spirit, but now he makes us alive and we're alive in Christ. This is the only thing we can claim. We have nothing to, we have nothing to claim for our own other than Christ. That's it. And so we praise him into the ages of the ages. It never stops. He is our standard of righteousness. He has covered us with his perfection and he has made us one of his own. Here in the pre-flood world, they were filled, obviously, with the false teaching of, uh, of, the, of the world and its day. They stood in opposition to the preachers of righteousness. And we know of two, Enoch and Noah, and perhaps Noah's family. It's according to how you want to gauge the context here in this verse. But remember this, we are told in the scriptures that the spirit of Christ was delivering the message of Christ in the pre-flood world. So, you know, in the revelation at the close of it, it the, the angel, in, in, we're told that, uh, that, that Jesus, you know, he is the word of prophecy. He is our proclamation. He's the only thing that mankind could ever proclaim from Genesis 1-1 to the Revelation 22-21. There is no other. He isn't named in the Old Testament, but he is certainly described. And finally, he comes in the due course of time. This, do you think of the judgment? How wicked was that? How wicked was that world? That even as wicked as this world is today, we still aren't concluded under the encumbrance of judgment that was poured out upon that world. There are still, thank God in heaven, there are still in this world, in the age of the church, there are still heralds of righteousness, proclaimers of truth, calling people to true discipleship. Read your Bible, stand on it as the absolute rock and foundation of all that is true and is right and reject anything that comes against it. Regardless of what it may cost you. There's still people like that in this world. You know, we're told in the Thessalonians, 
The only thing that's holding, holding the final time of this world back, the tribulation, the only thing that's holding it back, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says, he who restrains and that which restrains. Well, it has to be the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. That would be the he, that would be the masculine in the Greek text. And the neuter would be that which restrains would be empowered by the Holy Spirit, the work of the church. There's an interesting, I was reading it this morning just before church, I was reading again the account of the pre-flood world. And it said of that wicked generation, there was only evil in their heart. You may have heard this, but the word evil is the, is the Hebrew word Hamas. That's right, Hamas. It's the very word I saw, I looked at it. It's mentioned uh, at least twice, Hamas. And so I got into my, some of my rabbinical commentaries on that word there and saw that, you know, this is evil of thought, evil of behavior, evil of attitude, evil of language. In other words, everything, such a person who is Hamas. Now that's an exegetical statement. A person who is Hamas is utterly evil. There isn't one whit of goodness in such a person. So darkened in their hearts that there's not even the tiniest speck of light that shines anywhere. Hamas. And this is what God said, I must judge this. To please myself. He was in displeasure. This is where the words sorrow and grieved and all of that. It means that God's displeasure could only be comforted and satisfied and consoled by the vengeance of God, his wrath poured out upon that generation. So, false teachers are viewed in the same way. You probably don't get the theological journals that I get and, and, and study the, the magazines and newspapers of the day regarding, quote, Christianity, close quote. And the trend that started somewhere back in the 60s that I could observe, probably, it's probably always been with us, but it's so prevalent today, the trend of so-called denominational and religious leaders who are just compromising with the world. I was reading about a particular theological persuasion that in, a, in an extreme minor sense has existed in the church ever since the New Testament era. And it is those who discount the writings of Paul. In other words, anything that was written by Paul is not in my Bible. Okay, so Romans, I mean, all that stuff that Paul wrote, only the gospels, only the words of Jesus Christ. And so by, by, by discounting Paul, they agree with those who denominationally say, in, or in leadership, denominational leadership, say that 
Paul writes of a culture that doesn't exist anymore. So we have to discount the writings of Paul. We can't worship Christ in the, through the same lenses that Paul worshiped Christ. That's what they say. It might be that you'll hear this more and more in this postmodern era where churches feel like they have to agree. Something similar existed in the time of Spurgeon in the middle 1800s and it finally killed him in the late 1800s. They say he grieved to death. Spurgeon was what you call a particular Baptist. He, he, he did not follow everything of the Reformation, for example, uh, baptism of, of children and that sort of thing. But he did believe in divine election. Thus, he was a particular Baptist and not a general Baptist. But a particular Baptist still proclaims the gospel and calls for people to be saved universally because we don't know who the elect are. God does. We don't. We, we're under a mandate to preach to all of them. Oh, God, save them all. And then came Darwinism. Evolution. It swept the academic world. A theologian in Germany named Wellhausen came up with the Wellhausen Higher Criticism. And pastors begin to catch on to that because now they could hold on to their evolutionary people and hold on to their other people as well. And we could just please everybody with Wellhausen Higher Criticism. At his last British Baptist communion that he, or British Baptist Union that he went to, Spurgeon, who had the biggest church in the world, when they were voting as Baptists to adopt Wellhausen higher criticism, stood in great opposition. And he was soundly defeated by the representatives who were there, the representatives of the Baptist faith. Spurgeon's heart was broken. He grieved himself to death, they say, and he died in his early 50s. He died in his 50s. He began to waste away. So troubled by the drift of the world toward Darwinism. Now it's, now it's something else. It's, 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 it's theological. It's, it's behavioral. It's lifestyle. It's academic. Whatever you want to call it in the world. It, legislation, government, every. Every aspect of life that affects us. So we find ourselves in these days in the diminishing and diminishing minority. That doesn't matter. The textbooks of Darwinism that were so popular in the middle 1800s don't exist anymore. But the Bible does. The scientific textbooks that have opposed the principles of the word of God, one after another, collapse to the next generation, uh, really not a generation, the next year or two of textbooks that include things that are anti-biblical and anti-God, 
all the way through. And then they collapse because it's theoretical. It's not realistic. And then they have to rethink and they come out with new textbooks. This is all the time. I read journals about this all the time. They can't keep the same, but the Bible has never changed. In its original text, the Koine Greek and the classical Hebrew, it has never changed. It stays the same. Because it is divinely empowered, it's sovereignly and divinely given, and it is as eternal as the one who gave it. We're told in the prophet, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Whatever it was they were teaching in the pre-flood world died with that generation. It was a cleansed world into which Noah and his family emerged. And yet the sin nature that opposes God continues on and ravages through all the generations. How wicked was that world? Well, here's the contrast. Here's the comparison that we should make. How wicked is it to teach false doctrine? To dare oppose the word of God. God and his Christ. Then there was another. There were five cities on the plains. The two chief cities were Sodom and Gomorrah. He continues here. He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed the Greek word up there is a long, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long compound word about in the middle of the first line there. Katapanumenon. It means to be exhausted, tired. Lot was exhausted by the conduct of the people and the culture in which he lived. You remember the story of Lot. Abram said, you go that way. We're not getting along. Our family, our, you, you've grown to be a large household and, and my guys are having fights with your guys and this is not good. If you want to go that way, I'll go this way. Whatever, whichever you choose, I'll go the other way. Lot, of course, chose to go down to the plains where the cities were and he made somehow his residence in Sodom. The story of Lot is so pathetic It starts with Abraham looking out over the cities of the plains, high on a mountain, obviously concerned about nephew Lot, maybe praying for him, knowing that the stench of sin was so great. And suddenly three men appear. One of them was Yahweh. Or you could say Jesus in the Old Testament. He, the God appeared to him. The other two were angels. Abram Abraham made his salute, his salutations, and brought them in, fed them. And Yahweh said within his heart, I'm going to have to, I'm going to show Abraham what I've got to do. 
So he took him out and he said, I'm going to send these two angels and I'm going to destroy that whole plane because the stench of their sin has become, has come up to my nostrils. Lot begins to plead. You know the story. Oh, please, Lord, if there are 50 righteous, if there are 50, I'll spare the cities. 40, I'll spare the cities. 30, 20, 10. If there are only 10 righteous, I will spare the plains if there are 10 righteous people in that valley. It was then that Abraham realized the whole plains had been given over to utter wickedness. God sent those two angels down to that place and you know where they went? They went to rescue Lot before they destroyed the whole place. Lot, now he was he was a mess, Lot was. He did strange things. He, he, why did he want, why did he stay in Sodom? What was the deal? Both young and old, the men when the angels came and Lot said, oh, please stay with me the night. Now nah, we're going to stay in the square. You don't want to stay in the square. Come in here and stay with me. Let me feed you. Wash your feet. While all this was going on, all of the men from everywhere came and surrounded the house of Lot. You know the story. They demanded that these two men be sent out to them that they may know them, that is, sexually, in homosexual behavior. And Lot did a crazy thing. Well, what gets into this guy? He says, I have two virgin daughters. You can have them. What? I don't know. He'll have to explain that one to me. He don't have to explain anything to me, but I may sock him in the face when I get to heaven. Just say, well, you idiot. Two virgin daughters. Now, but for 10, think about this. In the Hebrew language, there was a son-in-law, which means there was a daughter who was married. We learn also there were two virgin daughters who had sexual relations with Lot when he got drunk. And then there were at least uh, two sons uh, because sons is separate from son-in-law, which is in the singular. And that brings us then to Lot and his wife. What is that, nine? It's less than 10, I know that. And he said, and Lot kept saying, I can't go. What an idiot. He said, we've come to destroy this place. You can't, we can't do anything until we get you out of here. Thank God for his covenant relationship with his own. They grabbed him and his wife by their hands and the other ones all grabbed hands and the only ones that agreed to leave were the two daughters other than Lot and his wife. The others stayed and fell into destruction. Sodom was too great for them. So they go up into the place where they would escape the jibs on their way. You know the story. Lot's wife, he, well, they weren't supposed to look back. She looked back. You can, get the, you can get the wicked woman out of Sodom, but you can't get Sodom out of the wicked woman. She turned to salt, pillar of salt. Up to the cave they go, Noah gets drunk. <laughs> That's funny. 
What am I going to take with me? Quick, quick, grab the booze. I don't know. I I don't understand all that. I'm, you know. (laughs) So, so distressed, distraught. I mean, the whole place. It stunk. It sulfuric. You read the the script, brimstone, all that stuff. Utter ashes. Nothing left except the stench of it. And in some sort of unnerved state, I don't know, Noah got drunk. I'm sorry. Well, Noah got drunk too. I know my drunk people, listen. They make me feel better when I read about them in the Bible. Lot got drunk. And then his daughters, oh, Went to bed with him. Oh, what if we die and we've never known a man and all this kind of stuff. One of them had a son named Moab. The other one, I mean, among the Moabites, the Ammonites, what a, what a miserable group of people. What, how cursed they were against Israel for the rest of the time. But Lot, he lives in oppression, distress, exhaustion the whole time. He says, I see this stuff going on. I can't stand it. I can't stand it. Well, you know, apparently he's held back because he had some family members that didn't want to leave with him. They didn't want to move. They, you know, the shopping was great there. You know, the life, the night, life, whatever. I don't know. He was tormented, it says. His righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Now, let me go up here. The first word that is lawless, the sensual conduct of lawless men. That word in the Greek text is different from the word here that is translated lawless. The first lawless means out of tradition, out of the norm. So these people lived out of the norm of conduct. And then down here, lawless is, I don't mean, it, it is the word that means against law. Most, most of the time you see it, it refers to the law of Moses. Against the law. If he rescued righteous Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the devout, the reverent, the irreverent and the reverent out of trial and to keep them the right, the un, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. There's that word again, to keep, to place under guard for the day of judgment. Here's, here's what it says. God knows how to judge the wicked and God knows how to rescue the righteous and he will. I gotta finish this, have mercy. And especially those after the flesh in passion of defilement, despise authority. You know what? The word authority up there. Curiotetos. The root of that is curios, which most most of the time in the New Testament refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. So despising lordship, which in my view here could be just as easily considered the lordship of Christ, the authority of Christ in our lives. The despise it, 
daring self-will, do not tremble, blaspheming glorious ones that is angels, angelic beings. Whereas angels who are greater in strength and power do not bring a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. You know, there's so much to say, I gotta quit. Here, if you don't believe the Bible, and you either become a false prophet or a false teacher or fall under the teaching of heresy. Because to do so, you have to reject a biblical worldview, the perfection of scripture. Even if you're a follower of heresy, of falsehood, a follower of false teachers and false prophets, then nothing in the Bible means anything to you. That includes angels. And so these guys, you know, people go around, they're gonna re rebuke this and revoke that and all that. Man, you're in trouble. Even the archangel wouldn't do that. But always say the Lord. The Lord rebuke you. So if you leave out scripture and it's, it's not your standard of life, anything goes. First of all, you turn loose of one thing. Then you turn loose of the next thing and the next thing until finally you are utterly trapped in blasphemy and heresy. To conclude, here's what Peter says. Such people are under the same judgment, viewed in the same way as fallen angels, the pre-flood world, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plains. Is that bad? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the son of God and he came into this world to save sinners in just a moment will be dismissed in prayer as you leave. Just outside across the hall, you will see deacons and their wives standing in doorways and they're there to pray with you. Is God calling you to Christ? They're ready to pray with you. Is God leading you into the membership of this congregation? They are there to talk to you and pray with you about your Spiritual needs before the Lord. Salvation, discipleship, that's what they're there. Prayerfully now, would you stand and we'll be dismissed from this room in a word of prayer.